I'm very happy to be here today with Glenn on The Meaning Code as we explore the question of what is life? And I just wanna read for you a little paragraph from a letter that I got from Glenn. Um, <clears throat> the general theme I see for our conversation is that before there was life, there was no biology, only physics and chemistry. So it's only the physicist and the chemist that one can look to for the origins of life. But what could the physicist and chemist possibly have to say about the origins of life? The most unsettling metaphysical implication is that the question, what is life, must be answerable without reference to biology. So I thought that'd be a good starting point, and um, I believe we're going to make this into a series because in order to cover a big question like that, we're going to have yeah. a lot of different issues. So, so Glenn, how would you like to introduce what we're going to do today? Well, I thought I'd start with a little uh, introduction of myself, and I will give you um, a background of what I'm going to say. And I know I'm going to say things that will get pushback on the uh, religion versus science debate from both sides. So I thought a little extra background would be helpful. Um, academically, um, my degrees are BA in math and a BS in physics, uh, graduate work in physics. Um, Career-wise, uh, professionally, I ended up uh, as an engineer in Silicon Valley. Had a, about a 15-year run, pretty good with that. Retired a number of years ago. Um, in terms of uh, my attachment to physics started in high school when I took my first physics class. I knew at that moment that that's what I was gonna do the rest of my life. Uh, I would call it my first love and my passion ever since. But, um, I originally thought I would go on and do something professionally in physics, but as usual, the good Lord has um, other plans. Um, I graduated from high school in 68. I did not end up back in graduate school until the academic year 89, 90. So there's a lot of years in there that uh, crazy things had happened in life. I, I look back now and I, I see how I was quite blessed with the unexpected and unique um, life that I've had. But a lot of things that I think about and the way I see things come out of those days. So I figure as, as I talk about my ideas on uh, stuff, uh, bits and pieces of my life will come out. Um, I made it to grad school. I'm equally good in math and physics. I didn't know whether I wanted to do a PhD in math or physics. So I eventually settled for um, getting my degree, uh, PhD in physics, but do my thesis in math. Unfortunately, again, good Lord had different plans. Um, one of the things uh, that being equally good has made for me is that I'm particularly interested in the crossover areas between math and physics. Um, I tend to be a physicist, but I think like a mathematician. So it, it gives me a little bit extra um, way to look, a few extra ways to look at things. Uh, as for retirement, um, I finally had health issues for forced a hard retirement on in the engineering career. But as you know, in, in Silicon Valley, there's no such thing as a 40-hour work week. 60 hours is minimum. My husband, always, my husband always says Silicon Valley is either one or zero. There's no yeah. in-between. You, you can't just coast a little bit or just say, I'll take a lower salary and only put in a 40-hour work week. No, you're either no, one or no. zero. So, um, 
it, it pretty much consumes you. You know, you 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 commute, you eat, you sleep, and and you think and you work. Uh, so I, I consider my health issues actually kind of a uh, early release from jail. <laughs> they gave me a chance to get take that put that part of my life behind me uh, and get back to physics. So. Uh, in some ways, I felt I'm feeling more alive these years uh, than I have in a long time. As far as uh, a life of faith, because that's a, an integral part of um, what I'm going to talk about, uh, I seem to have been gifted um, this faith right from from the start. I have never had or one of those come to Jesus moments that a lot of people have, and it's it's stuck with me all my life. It's it's not a choice. It seems like it's something that has a hang handle on me, and I have no say on that. Um, Seventeen, I decided that I didn't believe in anything in the church anymore. Told my parents I wasn't going to church. Um, and then, again, like I said, I, I graduated in high school from high school in '68, so I came of age right in the middle of the hippies and counterculture. I had my period of uh, what they call theological promiscuity and um, came back in my early 20s to my Christian faith. I think that I have always had this sense that there's something bigger, more important out there, and I was a part of it. And that's the thing that brought me back to my Christian faith. But it's just a side note is that they say, like, if you want to learn English grammar, the best way is to study a foreign language. For me, I'd say one of the greatest uh, ways I've come to understand my own Christian faith was the time I spent uh, immersed in other faith traditions. And, uh, and when you do that, you, you gain an appreciation for what Christianity brings, which is completely different than any of the other world's faith traditions have. Mm -hmm. So I came back far more grounded, I think. And the, the best I can say it is my Christian faith is tied to a place in me that my conscious mind can't reach and untie. I'm stuck. I have no choice in that. On the other hand, physics is the passion. I, I'm captive to it, too. So I've spent this life um, pretty much since I was 15, sort of stuck between physics and faith, not being able to let go of either one and wander off like most people do. Most people get a bit of science, they leave their faith and never come back. So I'd have to say that for most people, the question of uh, religion versus science is an academic one. They can talk about it and leave it. For me, it's always been an existential question that I can't walk away from. And as a result, I think I've, I've explored a lot of areas that most people will never end up in terms of that interface between, I say, faith and uh, physics now. Mm -hmm. So th that will be part of what I bring um, to my conversations. Um, anyway, so I would say I'm a physicist that thinks like a mathematician and a Christian that thinks like a physicist. And what it, it hasn't been always been easy. I remember once in my 20s, I was in a men's group. And I was told to my face that I, studying physics was sinful and that I couldn't study physics and call myself a Christian. And so I've, I've had a lot of that in life. And it's taken a number of years to come to terms with that. So that's kind of the world I've lived in. 
so that uh, hopefully sets the stage for um, what we're going to talk about next. And I think as far as you and I, I think we met were at the Jordan Peterson meetup in Sacramento. Yeah, yeah Paul Vander. Uh, and then it was shortly after that you started your YouTube channel. Yeah, and so somewhere almost, almost two years ago, mm -hmm. maybe two years ago in like April, maybe by the time April rolls around, it'll be two years. Mm -hmm. And then somewhere in there, I don't know how, but we started corresponding by email. And I guess you find the way I think about things intriguing and, and worth uh, bigger exposure. So, well, we you, I think you started the email conversation because you were looking at a question about robotics and you were thinking that there might be something in my artistic process that would inform the whole issue of um machine learning oh okay so we had, <laughs> i forgot about that we had a long correspondence about machine learning and its interface with with artistic exploration, it was I, fascinating. I think it would make a great book. <laughs> but um, anyway, we so we've had a long correspondence, and I've always appreciated the generosity of your heart that you're willing to answer some of my stupid questions, and you always are so patient and thorough in the way that you answer the questions. And the thing that's interesting to me is that our minds work so differently that when you answer one of these questions. You have answered the question thoroughly, and yet it generates so many more questions for me that it sends me on many more paths. And so I've gained a tremendous education just from corresponding with you because you generate questions in me and I have to go look for answers. And so um, my office is stacked high with pages and pages of notes of things that I've been exploring because of things that you set me off on. So I'm very excited about this series. I've been waiting for a long time to get you on here so that we could talk about these things. Because <laughs> I have so many questions and if you were, if I just had you face to face, I could ask them easier. So well, I'm gonna take one little thing out of your introduction and you said that, that you always have felt that there's something bigger out there. And, uh, Maybe a year ago, you put me on to a video by Nima Arkani Hamed, who is a theoretical physicist, mm -hmm. who talks about the inner interface between morality and physics. Very interesting video. And I wondered if I could play a little piece of that video that would give us a, a place to start in our discussion about how a scientist approaches the development of theories. Mm -hmm. that okay. Be? Yeah. Okay, I'm gonna gonna share screen here and find Nima Arkani Hamed and uh, see. Here it is. Else. They're sort of locally sitting there and are perfect. The deepest principles of physics, once uncovered, have a feeling of inevitability to them. Okay? And that's true for the more modern ideas, but it's also true for the ideas that were developed uh, three centuries ago. Locally, at any given point in time, uh, this has always been the case. Now, this thesis 
that the laws of nature have this amazing feeling of inevitability to them, uh, I think has been most beautifully uh, talked about by Steve Weinberg in this book that I'm, I think I've advertised in every public talk I've, I've ever given, probably. <laughs> if you haven't read this book, Dreams of the Final Theory by Steve, we by Steve Weinberg, you should. I think it's the best uh, popular physics book out there. Um, uh, but uh, the deepest one, certainly. Um, and in it, he talks at length about this notion that there's something amazing about the laws. Once, once you know it, they're hidden for a long time. But once you know the principles, one thing follows after another. You don't have to make seemingly random, strange choices. They have a feeling of inevitability about them, which is associated with this local perfection. Now, that makes something uh, somewhat mysterious because we eventually learn deeper truths. And often the deeper truths uh, involve radical changes from the past. For example, we had the transition from classical physics to quantum physics in the early part of the 20th century. And you couldn't ask for a bigger radical change in the, what seemed like the basic principles of physics. There was the Newtonian clockwork universe uh, where everything was determined, where the future was determined if you gave initial conditions in the present. And we went to this fundamentally probabilistic uh, picture of the world given to us by quantum mechanics. The entire rubric changed, everything changed. So how can that be? How can it be that if at any given moment, how, how can it be that the new laws, if the old ones work so well and they have this sense of perfection to them, how can it be that, that the new ones uh, can look so radically different? And that, at least to me, is the most miraculous aspect and the, the strangest and most mysterious and wonderful thing about the structure of the laws of nature is that what happens is that you discover new perfect things. They're not sort of smoothly, continuously connected to the old ones. You discover entirely new perfect things. Uh, but once you see the new perfect ones, you get a much deeper understanding of the old perfect things without changing the fact that the old ones had a local perfection to them. Okay. So here's a, a rough picture, very rough picture. If you imagine uh, our knowledge of the universe sort of increasing as we go forward in time, you might have thought that, you know, we knew about classical physics and we gradually learned more and we learned about quantum mechanics and that somehow the transition from classical to quantum laws is somehow smooth. Once you know this, well, you know, you sort of change it a little bit and gradually you learn better and better and better and it turns into quantum. Right? And it's not like that at all. It's rather something like this. The, the classical picture of the world is the top of a local mountain in the space of ideas okay? and and you go up to the top and it looks amazing up there and absolutely incredible and you learn that there's a taller mountain out there okay find it mountain quantum okay and they're not smoothly connected like this in fact you've got to make a jump to go from classical to a quantum okay but once you get up there it's taller it's taller and come look at that beautiful Mount Classical. Okay, it's just sitting there. there it, we're not changing the fact there's a beautiful peak sitting there. Okay, so it's local perfection. The fact that you can't make little modifications around it is this preserved, but you see something larger. You see something bigger. This also tells you why we have such major challenges in, in trying to extend our understanding of physics. We don't have, we don't have these knobs and little wheels and, uh, and, 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 and twiddles that, that we can turn. We have to learn how to make these jumps. And 
uh, it is a tall order, and that's, that's why things are difficult. As I said, we had this transition from classical to quantum uh, 100 years ago. Today, the analog of that transition is that uh, many, many of us uh, suspect that the notion of space-time can't be fundamental. and has to be... So I'm going to stop sharing there because I'm just going to put the video in the, in mm -hmm. the description and then people can watch it for themselves. The whole video is completely amazing. When he gets to the center of the video, he starts giving some actual um, examples from various physics problems. Mm -hmm. But then when he gets to the end of the video again, he goes back to this whole question of there is something bigger out there. And he says, you know, I don't believe in God, but I can't deny that there is something that is called truth that is out there. And, and through the exploration of physics, we can seek after that truth. And, and so it's a fascinating video. And uh, it occurred to me when, so this morning I ran into something that I had written a while back in reference to something else. But I, I started looking at it and I thought, wow, I said, that sounds very much like going from one mountain to another. I don't think that you, you, obviously you don't get from one mountain to the next mountain smoothly and you don't get there with a leap that can happen all at once. That's why it's taken a hundred years. Right? <laughs> so I was thinking about the question of, you know, how many, so many people say you can't get to an ought from an is, and then there's a big argument about that in, in philosophy and in science and everything else. So I was thinking about that controversy and, and what I wrote was this. It isn't that you can't get to an ought from an is, it's that you can't get from a premise in other words, what is, or the current state of the system, to an imperative conclusion, what should be, from what is to what should be, without an intermediate step. Along the way between one and the other, you fall into chaos. That's Jordan Peterson's picture of the world. Mm -hmm. That's falling into the depths, doing battle with the dragon and bringing back the gold. In order to maintain the flexibility of the system so that it doesn't become rigid and legalistic, one must make the journey. Well, you have to make the journey regardless because that's what life is, right? Yeah. It's making that journey. The chaos represents the unknown, the place where all the new information resides. All the information in the known is already low entropy, crystallized, immobile, restrictive, and all the necessary information to renew culture, to revivify it, resides in the unknown. Now, a pure materialist is going to say that it's the role of science to find the new information that is residing in the unknown. But how does science decide which parts of that treasure hall are actually good for the community for its long-term health and flourishing? And I think that's the process that Nima Arkani Hamed is describing, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, we could spend some time on just that example with the mountains. Um, like I mentioned uh, to you before, that it's a perfect example of Thomas Kuhn's um, paradigm shift in science, where it's not a smooth transition, it's, it's a jump. And uh, he got into a lot of uh, trouble from the rest of the science community because he suggested that essentially um, progress in science is a leap of faith of, of sorts. You, you jump from one known to another unknown, and 
And uh, most people want science to be Nima's first example, the continuous step-by-step, -step, everything's working. Mm -hmm. Thomas Kuhn was saying, no, it doesn't work that way. You, you need that leap of faith sometimes. And um, so I think the, the mountain's a perfect example of that. Um, well, I think there's yeah. a reason why most people want that smooth transition because you don't have to be either zero or one in order to do the smooth transition. You can just puddle along and work on things around the periphery mm -hmm. and you know fiddle with this knob and fiddle with that knob. And right. it, it doesn't require, like uh, he says later in the, in the lecture that Einstein spent eight years just thinking before the light bulb went off yeah about relativity and he said it requires enormous moral and intellectual endurance to be able to continue down that road for eight years without an answer without you know without seeing any benefits of all your efforts and he, uh, he when he talks about it he's like i don't even see how anybody could do that even six months in the life of a physicist if he can't make some yeah. breakthrough is like an eternity so I don't know where to start. It, well, I'm wondering. For, say, let's my let, first introduction. Let's say that Thomas Kuhn and the paradigm shift will be an episode. Maybe okay. what we can do here is do a big overview, and then we can pick out where the episodes will be, and we'll follow up with these things. So okay, so but since we're on on Nemus, uh -huh. I think uh, a a, a background of of him would help the listeners. Okay. Currently, I mean, that's one of the few uh, lectures he does that you don't need a graduate level understanding of physics to sit through. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of uh, unique to start with. Um, he, for the last decade or so, he's been one of the alpha dogs in uh, theoretical particle physics. Um, as I would say that in time, he will be remembered as long with, along with you know, Weinberg and Wheeler, Penrose, um, von Neumann is a name that we'll hear pretty soon. Uh, but he works at such a level that you'll never hear about any of his work at a TED Talk. So he's sort of an unknown quantity in the public, but in the physics community, he has is, he is quite the reputation. And which is what allowed him to give this lecture in the first place. Any lesser physicist, this would have been, that lecture would have been um, a career ending event because in physics, you don't talk about issues of morality. It's, it's like, just don't do it. But he could go there and, and he's kind of amazing in that sense. Uh, he grew up, his parents were Iranian. They were both physicists. So he grew up in post-revolutionary Iran, fundamental Islam. His parents had to flee. They made it out and through a bunch of happy accidents, he ended up in Canada. So he has a very harsh attitude towards fundamental religions because he grew up in an Islamic world. Mm -hmm. But I find it amazing that he still comes back to it. You would think that he would have every reason to be a very harsh atheist, but he's not. He's, a, he's quite a, a standout in the physics community for his willingness to tackle these subjects. And, and one thing I wanted to touch on is, is they say you can't get an ought from an is. But if you listen to the beginning of his talk, he makes a really good point that I, I just want to throw out for people to think about. 
that if to do physics, you have to believe that there is an objective reality out there that controls our lives, but is separate and independent of us, but is yet knowable and accessible to us. And so he calls it capital T truth. And while physics doesn't have anything equivalent to the Ten Commandments buried in it, and no one's arguing that, but he said he looks at the job of being a physicist, just at a mundane level. We're per imperfect, finite creatures, but yet we're trying to approach the perfect, the true, the capital C truth. And in order to do it, it takes a certain um, self-discipline, you know, professional discipline, and. That is an interesting to think about, I think, in, in the rest of our life is how we as imperfect creatures approach the perfect. And there's certain ways to do it and there's certain strategies. And it, they basically boil down to the only way you can do it is in truth. You can't bring your ego, you can't tell it what to do. You, you have to accept its pronouncement on you. And it's harsh. Um, most physicists, their, their general career is you work five or 10 or 20 years on something, you, you commit your life to it, and then some 20-year-old grad student at Caltech or Berkeley comes up with a new theory that wipes all of your work out. Mm -hmm. It takes a certain sense of self, a, a spiritual commitment to the truth, to be able to live with that kind of uh, future always looking at you. That, yeah, you're going to dedicate your life to something and someone will prove everything you've done is wrong. But for a physicist, the journey is not to be the smartest, to not know the stuff. Or it's, the, it's the truth. It's always the search for the truth and hang on to that. That's what keeps you going. Anyway, that's, I'm not sure if that makes any sense. But Oh, yeah, no, that was perfect. Um, and it, it made me think about so many other things. Um, maybe the search for truth would be an interesting yeah well because I, what when you said when you when you said that he believes that there is an objective reality and that that is the that is truth with a capital t and it can be knowable and accessible that's something that i've been arguing for a long time i mean it's not not new to me a lot of other people have said that but it's strange to me that I came to that conclusion through, well, through really reading God's word and seeing that, but through seeing in God's word that there is this objective truth. I mean, there's, once you read the whole word and you read it a number of times and you look at it and you, and you see, you know, living with God's word is kind of similar to those two mountains because, mm -hmm you learn some life lesson through you read something in god's word that applies to your life or you apply it to your life in some way and then you go through more life and and you discover the absolute crystalline truth of that thing and so you carry that with you forward but then somewhere along in life you have some big crash and you're at a different level in your life you've fallen in a crevasse someplace or you've had mm -hmm. some sort of trauma and then you come back to that same word that you read before and now it is this bigger deeper explosive data compression of wisdom that blows up yeah. life right mm -hmm. and it's like those two mountains so but but he comes at this he comes at that bit of wisdom strictly through doing physics 
that's kind of mind-blowing. I know, and uh, I guess it, it's a subject we could talk about, but um, Jordan Peterson is a bit of the same phenomenon. Someone starting from science and a purely secular uh, point of view still arrives at scripture. Yep. Um, I, I, I've noticed that he gets a lot of criticism, I noticed, from the Christian side uh, for that. They're nuts. <laughs> but what I, as, as a physicist, I've been to the other side, and, and I've lived that, and I've immersed myself, and so I know the road back. And what I think people don't appreciate is that, well, he doesn't take scripture literally. He takes it deadly seriously. Mm -hmm. And I've sort of come to that same pathway, coming back to scripture and seeing it through the physicist's eyes. You also start to realize the enormity of what you're looking at. And um, a lot of the just the strictly literal Bible way of thinking, it seems to be shallow and, and unsatisfying to me. So I'll probably get some flack for that statement. <laughs> Oh no! I well, I I totally agree with that. I uh, I've had this picture in my head for a long time of of um, well, maybe maybe it's too big an idea to spring out here, but but that God's word. <clears throat> of course, there's many different ways to think about God's word, but let's just take the Bible as one way of thinking about God's mm -hmm. word. That God's word is complete and knowable at at every level for any any person at any level mm -hmm. and um at any intellectual level yep. i've known people that that had extreme intellectual challenges and um and yet they could fully understand the meaning when when god's word was explained to them and 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 yet you can take somebody who's extremely brilliant and they will also find that yeah. there and it's it's true from the beginning of time until now so even though over time the world has changed and um history has had its impact and science has had its impact and everything else the truth of god's word is still true today that that's kind of crazy but I've gotten come to the place where I think it's not only the word as a whole, the Bible, but that each word in the Bible has that same uh, structure to it. Because let me take a, a simple example. A mother is out on a walk with her child and there's a stone in the road. She says, be careful, don't trip over that. That's a rock. And, you know, you'll, you'll get hurt if you trip over it. So the child has a picture of what a rock is. A rock is something you stumble over. And maybe later the, the little one picks up the rock and says, oh, rocks are heavy. And you know, over time, they get more and more information about a rock. And maybe they end up becoming a, physicist, a, a geophysicist and they break the mm -hmm. rock, rock open and they see all the information there is inside the rock and all the chemicals and the structure and all that. Now they have a deeper understanding of rock. I think every word in the Bible is like that where it opens up not only over time but through all the levels of intellectual endeavor and and through all the impact of history and everything every word carries in it this kernel that expands in meaning over time so i'll i'll add a few comments you know 
the way I always put it is, is the Christian faith has a rung on the ladder for everybody, oh, no matter yeah. where you start. Yeah. I like that. And, and that's one of the things I've noticed about the parables and things like that, especially is you read them, you think you understand, and then you go out and live life. You know, you have kids, you marriage, you know, you come back and you read the scripture again. And it's like, there's all this new stuff there that you never saw before. And if you think about it, it's sort of a, I, I consider that a point on the line that points to the authenticity of the scripture because no human written document could have that ability to be always new and fresh. Mm -hmm. And every time you change, it changes. So it shows you new things. Mm -hmm. So that, that can't be the product of a human uh, author by itself, by him or herself. Mm -hmm. And um, so I was thinking of one other thing, but, no, I forgot. It'll come back to you. So, yeah. <laughs> we have plenty of time. So um, so we, we, we are exploring the question of what is life. So, um, okay. yeah, so when we, so we, we, we talked about paradigm shifts. We talked about um, morality and physics. Oh, so the reason we were talking about morality and physics is this idea that that I, and I think it's one of the ideas that Jordan Peterson talks about quite a bit. I'm not sure he frames it this way, but I had a conversation with Brett on Monday. Mm -hmm. and Brett was saying that when scientists are, if a scientist grabs onto a theory and just holds onto it for dear life, he's really hurting himself because you, you don't grab onto the theory. What you do is you grab onto the process that continually updates the theory. Mm -hmm. And so it's that process of finding truth. And then, and then that's what Neymar Khani Hamid is talking about, right? Yeah. So if you want to walk that walk, then you have to leave your ego at home. That's one of the lessons there. Mm -hmm. uh, and so as you walked that walk and left your ego at home, you've begun exploring this idea of what is life. Mm -hmm what what are some of the thoughts that have occurred to you or what what trajectories has that taken you down uh well in general the, the course of my life is is this feeling that, that physics and faith are not separate things it's mm -hmm. it's common to say religion and science are two different things and they don't have any crossover but i'm a living proof that they they do and you know, the answer to that accusation about you can't be a physicist and a Christian, I, I finally realized that what makes me a physicist is this awe and wonder and curiosity. That's where it starts. It's not, physics isn't a bunch of equations on a page. It's, it's curiosity and a, a, just this desire to know, experience. But my faith is anchored in this sense of transcendence, that there's something bigger out there, more important that I'm just a small part of, but a special part. And I realized those two things come from the same place inside me. Mm -hmm. So I'm stuck. Faith and physics, they're, they're coming from the same place, so they can't be different. So how do you find your way back? How do you find a, a way to, to fit them together? And I think Brian Miller made a comment that I, I, I liked was that, a little bit, a little bit of science takes you away from faith, and the way back isn't to throw out science; it's 
it's more science to immerse yourself, go, go, go all the way down the rabbit hole, so to speak, until you hit bottom, and then you look back, and there, there's scripture staring at you. And my sense at that point was like, oh shit. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, which is why, in a funny way, uh, if you had to peg me as a Christian, I would, I would call myself a uh, confessional Lutheran with an asterisk. And normally you would think that would be a very traditional, uh, small orthodox view, but yet I'm a physicist, so how do you mix the two? And I think it has to do with my comment about Jordan Peterson is that I take scripture incredibly seriously now in ways that I, I never did before. And, oh, I remember now, you mentioned about how every word is important. Mm -hmm. And I think in one of your other videos, you, you've talked about data compression. Mm -hmm. And this is a fun, fun game as an engineer you can play with scripture. If God is going to speak to us, he's not going to give us this huge laundry list of every little detail. It's going to be um, documented in compressed format. But one of the things that you need in any compress, compression algorithm is you need an error correction, error checking mechanism built into the, the file. And also, it's helpful to have what the, in the movie Contact they call the primer. You need to have some way, the document needs to tell you how to read it as well. And I remember that's one of the things that sparked me on what Martin Luther said that the scriptures tell you how to read them. But they only tell you how to read them correctly if you keep them all together. And uh, error correction algorithms only work if you keep everything there. And by the time I left the Lutheran Church, they were taking the scissors to the Bible and throwing stuff out and, and essentially had reached the point, at least in the Elka side I was in, throwing out the Old Testament completely, which I thought was funny because I believe that's the classic heresy of Marcionism. But the understanding is the Bible has to be read completely as a whole, front to back, unedited if you want to get what is trying to tell you so yeah yeah and every, right. every error that every error always is an error of taking something out of context and, mm -hmm. and trying to find your meaning in that out of context thing and that of course that's the error that all the aggressive evangelical atheists make some scripture out of context and then they start pontificating on that and they have no idea how many connections that passage has mm -hmm. and and what it really means i know well the, well the wonderful thing about martin luther you know his word a oh, word alone that's one of the five solas was that if you take the scriptures as a whole you have this emergent phenomenon where the whole is greater than the sum of the parts there's something bigger going on you only see if you look at the whole thing taken together and ask, what is the big picture? And if you just focus on quoting scripture and looking at things in isolation, you'll never see that big picture. Anyway. So that, makes me, that just brings to mind something that I picked up from a Julian Barber video the other day. Um, you familiar with him? Is he the one that's doing the time stuff? Yeah, he's a theoretical physicist, and he's doing the time stuff, and he's also doing some stuff on entropy. Um, 
and it's this stuff on entropy that I found interesting. He says that all of the um, experimentation that's been done around entropy in thermodynamics, they always do it in a box. But he says the universe isn't a box. I know. And so he feels that a lot of the conclusions that they came to about entropy are wrong because they aren't doing the experiment in the right way. Correct. So basically, he is saying that entropy is not always increasing, that if you look at the universe, the universe is always actually increasing in order, becoming increasingly ordered all over the universe. And so that made me think about things from so many different directions, and especially one of the things that we, we do in art is that um, when you're painting a large painting, you don't start in one corner and paint and paint and keep painting until you get the whole canvas covered and then you're finished. You paint and then you go back and you make a more detailed mm -hmm. representation and then you go back and you add in more detail and you go back and add in more detail. So, so you're always covering the whole canvas, mm -hmm. not just the corner. And, and so I think that's one thing maybe in scientific, um, trajectories the scientists who are looking at the big picture all the time are the ones that make those leaps right unfortunately in physics people who are interested in foundational questions will never find a tenor track physician that's sort of the jokes if you're lucky you'll end up in a math department or a philosophy department uh, the, the industry of physics now is, is driven by publications and grants and to take the time to, to think on foundational issues doesn't generate either one of those. So departments don't want you. Um, now, is that but, different but, when, when Einstein was working? Was it different in the scientific community then? I, I would say yes. Um, see, he was at the Institute for Advanced Study. So basically, they just gave him everything in a, in a room, and he was paid to sit there and think. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Few of us get that opportunity, yeah. But still, there was an intensity to his his um, thinking that it's worth emulating if you can. Wasn't um, he also working in a post office or something like that in a package? He started out after he graduated from college. He ended up working as a patent clerk. Oh, okay. In Switzerland, mindless work, but. You can mm -hmm. learn an awful lot in a job like that because <clears throat> when you're doing the mindless stuff, your brain is completely free to be cogitating. <laughs> but he was his his wife was a physicist too, and that's one of those big questions: is how much of his early work was his alone, and how much was a collaboration with his first wife? Because it was very unusual for a, a girl to get a degree in physics at that time. Mm -hmm. So it would tend to indicate his first wife must have been pretty special. But we don't know. Um, they divorced and he made it to the United States and she in a concentration camp someplace. So history was lost. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, that's, you have the benefit of having all this history of science in your head too. So makes you a very good mm -hmm. person. <laughs> So well, this first intro is turning, 
you were on the path of talking about what it was that got you or the trajectories that you've gone down on this question of what is life. And so you had mentioned mm -hmm. Brian Miller. Um, would this be a good place to show that little piece of Brian Miller's video? Uh, I'm not sure which one that was now. Okay, well, um, um, I'll bring it up and we'll look at it and, and then we can always talk about it. it it's only a couple of minutes long, so. Um, okay. I'm having more and more senior moments these days. Placed by something else. But what could that possibly mean? You know, space and time are the most, uh, uh, physics for 400 years, if nothing else, is about telling us how things change in time. But life requires space. small, low what energy molecules to form oh, very oh, big. Oh, no. Well, we don't know. There's going to have to be a jump I'm, of a comparable magnitude and the I'm jump that people have to make here. going from quantum. Yeah. Quantum. Well, we can come back to we can just okay. hear in, in the distance. But I, I can hear both. Yeah, I. What I, I want you to take away. I don't from know this what is, happened. Uh, first, an appreciation for the. <laughs> I'm going to put us on pause. <laughs> okay, I'm going to try again, and we're going to share screen. And uh, now we're going to listen to Brian Miller. Energetic molecules like RNA, DNA, and proteins. That's a big problem. So every natural process does the opposite of what's needed to get life. That's why the order in self-organizing systems that are driven far from equilibrium is, the, is quite different from the order in life. Oops, sorry about that. Ah, that's better. So instead of having these dynamic patterns like a tornado cloud, you need structural order in chemical bonds with molecular machines. While these uh, systems, you get order macroscopically, like a tornado cloud, you have microscopic increases of entropy. With life, you need the opposite. With these far from equilibrium systems, they still go towards lower free energy, but life, you have to go to higher free energy. And what happens is the law of governed order is how you describe a tornado, but with life, you have specified complexity, which means you have very specific arrangements of molecules that transcend the physics and chemistry in the same way you can't explain a car by the physics and chemistry of plastic and metal. You can only explain it by the blueprint. It's the same sort of order you see in life. You have blueprints. And of course, uh, there's been more sophisticated analyses by people like Jeremy England in MIT. And Jeremy England has talked about what are called fluctuation theorems. And a really interesting story is people said that Jeremy England came up with a new physics theory for life that somehow physics can explain the origin of life. Who's seen that article, a few of you? The wrong crowd, that's fine. Um, again, I never trust what you read in the press. I go back to the original literature. When you look at England's equations, it, it basically disproves all origin of life theories. Because when you actually look at his math, what it shows you is in systems driven far from equilibrium, they tend towards greater entropy. The, the internal entropy increases, and they tend to give off heat. Well, again, the origin of life requires the opposite. <clears throat> so based on his equations, what happens is the probability of life forming away from equilibrium is just as small as near equilibrium. What that means is the origin of life, trying to argue that life originated through natural processes, is like trying to create a perpetual motion machine or to market alchemy. It's a scientific impossibility. So the question is, how does life come about? 
how, because cells reproduce, right? How does that happen? Well, any, any of you see, see the Avengers? So maybe I'll stop there. Yeah. And uh, we, can, we can explore that in further episodes of this thing. But, you know, his, his big question is then how does life begin? So we're starting, okay. <laughs> um, I, I've listened to a lot of these um, videos on the origins of life. Um, Paul Davies is, is a little better than usual because he's a physicist by, you know, by profession, by training. Uh, and I think he brings a, a, a fairly broad background, but he makes the same, um, I don't want to call it error, but assumption that I want to challenge is that um, life is biological. So um, there's two pathways to the origin of life. Uh, one is the biological side, starting from the top down towards simpler and simpler organisms until you end up at some bacteria. And then you have to decide, well, how did that bacteria or that simple system life form come about? And you realize that statistically it's not going to happen. And they've gone on to what they call the RNA world, that maybe there was a simpler non-cellular structure, like made up of similar RNA, and then have um, it's the same intelligent design arguments hit there too. It's statistically, it's not going to happen. Uh, they talk about uh, the Miller-Urey experiment, I think that is. Mm -hmm. The first one where they put some chemicals, uh, gases in a uh, container and put an electric spark through it and cooked it for a while and came up with some organic chemicals. And that was almost 70 years ago. And it sort of spawned a whole industry of coming up with different possible scenarios to what might have existed on uh, the early earth and then seeing if you could synthesize based on the environments that you found would find on an early earth um, organic chemicals necessary for the building blocks of life and to the extent that I've, I've kept up with the research my impression is that they have been able through one mechanism or another um, cook up every single building block of life through some scenario or another in the, in the lab. Mm -hmm. But you still have the problem. You have to get it all together in the same place. And I think this is something uh, Brian Miller brings up in part of his talk, is that even if you can synthesize all the various building blocks, all of those synthesizing mechanisms occur in different places, heat here, cold there. Then you have to get it all together in some spot. Uh, and then, you know, short of some Dr. Frankenstein reanimation process, you're not going to turn a soup of chemicals into a life form. And so you're stuck. You know, there's, there's no explanation that I can see coming from the biological side, which will give you the, um, get you to the origins of life. Mm -hmm. But there's the second side, and that's the point I think I made in, in the email, was that before there was bio, um, life, there was no biology. And so if you're looking at a barren, sterile earth, um, the only places you have to look for the origin of life would be physics and chemistry. Um, I think um, 
Paul Davies talks about that. That, and he essentially goes off and, and says that physics has nothing to say about that because physics and chemists speak a completely different language than biologists. He says that biologists speak an information of language, uh, of an, a language of information, whereas the physicists and chemists talk about matter and energy. And so he he sort of just closed that door for discussion. And where I react to it is is no. Uh, information is a physics question. Um, partly the reason you don't hear physicists um, chime in on the question of origin of life is uh, professionally it would be career suicide to do that. So it's pretty quiet. Uh, but since um, I'm old and retired, I'll, I'll walk point on this one. And, uh, <laughs> and, and I'm not afraid to take it on. And, and we'll approach it from uh, origins of life from the physics chemistry side and so that's well so we can start the story i'll just keep talking yeah, yeah um, absolutely start your story so um what could possibly uh physicists chemists possibly have to say the first thing you realize that before a physicist and chemist can start working on the design problem they have to have some kind of um, external design specification. Um, this is a bit of my life uh, I'll throw in just to help understand. What's it. I had a, a wonderful opportunity for a few years to work in uh, as a contract engineer with um, companies that specialize in medical device development. Mm -hmm. Doctors would, would find a new pro um, technique or something they could do in a clinic and they would come in with their idea and they say, can you make this? Can you make something that will enable this procedure that we want to try. And so there's um, engineering firms that specialize in just taking ideas from scratch paper and, and a few hand waves and turning it into something, a piece of hardware that you could take into clinical trials. And so the doctors will come in, they'll meet with the partners and maybe the managers. They'll come up with a plan, then they'll bring in a team of engineers to start working on that design question and my particular niche was embedded systems uh, hardware so if a medical device whether it was a handheld throwaway or roll around card if it had a computer in it that's where i came in so it was it's a fun place to work because you're literally starting from an idea on a napkin and you have to turn that into hardware and I've become that's that's part of the creative process is to see something that's only an idea, which is something of no substance, and see it turned into a piece of hardware. I wonder if art is sometimes that way for you. But to do that, it takes a certain there's a process. You don't just magically I'm going to make something. You have to sit down and you have to have some kind of design spec. So. I imagine myself as, as a design engineer on this team that I'm talking to the client, which maybe is God or Gaia or, or you know, who knows, whatever, Supreme Beam or whatever, universe. And the project is to create this first life form. And we're going, okay, well, what, what, what is it? And so before you can even start the project, you have to have some kind of definition of what life is. And it can't be in terms of biology because you haven't seen biology yet. And I, I realize I'm, I'm probably saying something that's rather, might be controversial or 
people might have some pushback on that they can't imagine that that's true. Because um, one of the implications now is that if there's non-biological definition of life, then there might be non-biological life forms. And what could that possibly be? You know, maybe head on into some science fiction stories, but we can touch base on that later. And so that's um, where I wanted to start because once you start questioning what could a non-biological life form be, you get into entropy, you get into information, you, you, you're firmly into thermodynamics. And so now I'll, I'll leave it there and I'll go back to the biology side. And if you look at all of the arguments against a biological origin of life, they're all statistical, you know, that essentially the odds that something like this will happen is cosmologically zero. And, and I use that term to mean, even if you had the lifetime of the universe to sit there and wait, it still wouldn't happen by chance. So, and then it's sort of stuck there. People are hoping that there'll be some kind of complexity, you know, there'll be some magic out there. And so you see people go off in complexity theory or, um, they, they loosely lose, use the term emergence in, in ways that it should not be. Um, the non-equilibrium thermodynamics, uh, uh, stuff like that. And I realized uh, in my book, a lot of that is, um, they're using complexity and emergence as, as like the cornfield in the movie Field of Dreams. It's a place things go out, something happens, things emerge, and we have life. Whereas as a physicist, my inclination, my instinct is to tear everything down to the simplest first principles. So I would say the physicist would say, no, complexity, forget it, simplicity, look for the simplest example you can. So I've, um, So let's get back to the biology. If it's complexity rules out the possibility of biological life, then what, what, what do you do next? You know, your job, you're a hardware designer, you gotta, you make this. You can't just say, well, it's an academic problem, I'm done. So when I look at it from the biological side, I say, well, what out there is a working example that I might work from? And there is an example that we live with every day that defies the cosmological odds. And that's every time you turn your a computer on, whether it's your desktop, a laptop, your smartphone, that computer is waking up with nothing in its memory. That that all the ones and zeros in the memory will magically align themselves up just in the right way when you turn something on so that you have a running system. Well, that doesn't happen, but computers turn on. So what are computers doing that the biologists are not looking at? And it's called, I, you know, in some times a bootloader or it's a boot strapping process. Your computer has a tiny bit of code in non-volatile memory, memory that doesn't forget. It sits at address zero. The machine wakes up, it reads that tiny bit of code, loads it into its memory, and then uses that to load more code until it figures out where the operating system is. And then it goes, there's a boot track on your media, and then it will load that in, and then eventually the computer runs. 
So my suggestion to the biologists is, is you need to look for a bootloader. There has to be some non-biological system that acts as the bootloader that brings your complexity into being. And I've not seen anyone tackle that. I would like to spend the, the last years of my life maybe trying to do that mathematically. I think it would be fun. But well, okay, so let me let me ask a clarifying question. So how would mathematics help you find the bootloader? <clears throat> well, okay. Well, that gets back to physics and my my crossover. I've I've always lived in the, in the world between math and physics. And I've been really excited in recent years um, when I got acquainted with Landauer's principle and the, the notion that information is physical. But a lot of, um, so I've, I've dove into that and, and come to a lot of conclusions. But I've also uh, kind of uniquely, I've been very attracted to math logic and set theory over the years. Uh, I remember getting that as an undergrad and just being completely fascinated. And so I've spent time um, in math logic. I've, I've had, had courses. And so I've been up at through Girdle's incompleteness theorems, though I can't remember all. I just know that I did it. I've uh, been working with the theory of computation, um, which gets you into turning machines and stuff. And I'm intrigued by the, the crossover where Landor lets you associate things in physics, physical systems, mechanical systems, with abstract mathematical uh, structures in the theory of computation. So, so, so let, let me, I, I don't want to lose this thread as we go through. <clears throat> mm -hmm. So you're saying it would be theoretically possible for an input of information to enter the physical and be this bootloader. Yes, where that bootloader See, is. That's what I'm, I'm just, just saying. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what it is, but I'm just trying to say, um, so you, I, I you, you know, it's like the, the mountain. Yeah, it's, it's like the mountain analogy from NEMA is, is the biologists are coming up the hill one way and the physicists are trying to come up the hill the other way. And it's telling you there's got to be something in between. There's got to be a point these two things come together. And a lot of um, people on the Christian apologetic side, they, they go at the argument to prove intelligent design. Mm -hmm. But one of the essence of doing science is the first person you need to prove wrong is yourself. Yep. You need yep. to work harder at proving yourself wrong. And so a lot of the and, and arguments... And I'm throw in here that the biggest problem with any of these kinds of things on the faith side where you're trying to prove something and you're not in the beginning trying to prove yourself wrong is that you end up awash in pride there's no way out of it and then you're stuck mm -hmm. right back in the garden mm -hmm. and the, the, i used to be on the worship team in church and that's the same thing we used to get lectures all the time beware 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 because satan was a worship leader and you're always vulnerable to that Oh man, I've really got it now. I, I either I really know how to worship, or I really know how to help other people worship. And you know, I've reached, I've, I've got the answer. The minute you get there, you're back in the hole again because you, you lost the whole thing to pride. And and so, even physicists are vulnerable to that. 
Christians certainly are vulnerable to that. And, and apologists are very vulnerable to that. And they're making other people vulnerable to that because they have all these acolytes that, oh, now they have all the answers. Oh, my internet is getting unstable again. I hope we can hold on because we're, you know, okay. Things seem to be okay now, so. Yeah, well, I'm just getting rolling now. <laughs> well, I yeah. thought this would be short, like a half an hour, but. Um, we'll probably go another 10 minutes. And while we're doing that, I'm writing things down because I think this whole thing about Landauer's principle, information is physical, and how that overlaps with entropy and information, that would make a great episode right there. So, so just keep okay. talking and I'm finding future episodes. Okay. Go. Well, I'll, I'll try and set up the physics side of this and, okay. and do it from a, my own experience as an engineer okay. working on a design team. You, you get this design spec, which is basically a, base, a black box description of what they want to do. No one knows what's inside, but this is how we want it to act. So I imagine you know the physicists and the chemists are sitting there looking at each other going, okay, you got anything? Oh, no. The physicists will go, well, we've got this thing called a Maxwell's demon. That sort of maybe kind of like, like, like acts like this thing that's being described as life. It's not really. So let's go out on the workbench and at least see if we can make this Maxwell's demon. And when you're doing prototype design work, you never try and do the first, the product the first time. There's always multiple stages where you, you do a little bit and then you check and then you grow, you change. So as a design engineer, I always look for that zero to one transition, that the simplest thing that you can get working that will tell you, is this gonna whole idea gonna work or not? If you can't get this little thing working, then you can't get everything else working. And in the past, I've gotten flack a lot of times for like, why aren't you doing the project? It's like, well, you know, what you're doing doesn't look like anything like we're trying to do. I said, well, you need to get this working. If it doesn't work, nothing else. If you can't get a Maxwell's demon working at the physical level, a chemical version of a Maxwell's demon. So that's the first project. That's the first bench proof of principle prototype as a, as a design physicist you would do. And so my question is to the chemist, how would you make a Maxwell's demon chemically? And I've never seen that addressed. And I think you alluded to this too in your painting is you never get it right the first time. There's always a pass. And then you step back and you learn from that. And you go, okay. And then you come back and you learn each and each step. If you can get a Maxwell's demon working, then a self-reproducing system, that's a, uh, that's a solved problem. There's a whole area out there called artificial life you know, simulations, it's kind of a stagnant area because they've never been able to actually create something that evolves. But they have solved the problem of self-reproduction. So if you can get a Maxwell's demon working, you can get self-reproduction going, then who knows? I haven't, I haven't thought that far ahead. But I do see a pathway forward. And I'd be curious to see if someone would ever tackle it. But I, I do believe at this point it's doable. So that's kind of a question to uh, the listeners is to come up with a definition of what life is that doesn't include biology. And I think if you play with that, you'll realize that everyone, we all somehow include ourselves when we talk about what is intelligence, what is life, what is free will, what is um, consciousness. We always define those things relative to us 
or a human being. And so that turns those subjects into, or questions into personal ones, which hampers a lot of the discussions. So you'll often find discussions on these subjects will go to the strongest personality in the debate because there's no rigorous mathematical definition for them that you can pin a, a, an argument to. So take yourself out, see if you can describe what life is without including you in it. And uh, Well, one of the gonna, things I was thinking about from that, um, the Brian Miller video, no, it's from the Paul Davies video, when he showed the picture of <clears throat> the the steps, the process of metabolism that goes on in the simplest bacteria mm -hmm. <clears throat> and the complexity of that. And it seems to me at a very fundamental level, life as we know it, at least, it, it requires an input of energy. That's mm -hmm. why, that's how it can um, become ordered and, and de you know, decreasing entropy and all that kind of stuff. So it requires an input of energy. And that energy is then metabolized. So is there, there has to be a system for the metabolism to happen. And that requires little molecular machines. It requires all kinds of things. I mean, there's a long list of things required for that. Mm -hmm. Is there any physical equivalent to the idea of metabolism? Probably not, right? You know, uh, I mean, just in the world of physics, in some kind of abstract sense, there is because a, a, a demon, a Maxwell's demon, harvests energy from its environment by the choices it makes, and so um, that's its energy input for sustaining itself is by harvesting information in the world around us. In fact, that's what we do when we eat, we metabolize, we're harvesting the energy that's been collected into the molecules of whatever poor creature we're eating. Well, so so I, I was thinking about this this morning because I, I hit a roadblock when I was trying to think about how entropy works. Uh, so this is obviously going to be a bigger discussion. We won't be able to tackle entropy today. But, but if I eat something, I'm getting an input of energy. Mm -hmm. Okay, But if I just keep eating and I don't, have any output of energy then that creates disorder so my input of energy is actually creating disorder which is upside down which i guess is why life is upside down from other things if i if i take in energy but then i expend energy through exercise and mm -hmm. burn it off i'm creating order because my muscles are getting stronger my bones are getting stronger I'm getting healthier, so I'm creating order through the mm -hmm. expenditure of energy, which is the way it usually works. You expend energy and you decrease entropy. Isn't that mm -hmm. correct? So, but there's, yeah. a, there's an input of energy and then there's a dissipation of energy. And um, there's something about the human that the energy input has to be balanced with the energy output or or you don't get order so so this energy in and energy out and you you get maintained order so how does that work in a physical system well i think this is a a, a good example of where we have to go is 
is the use of the words entropy and energy and information that mm -hmm. as a physicist I, I get a little frustrated because they've been so conflated that we don't really it's hard to use them people try and use them in ways that they don't really work yeah they um, they use entropy when they should use information um, they use order and complexity they mix it up um, so what is order and complexity depends off if you're talking about entropy or information. Um, the, the Julian Barber, I, I picked up on that is really nice, is entropy, when you're talking entropy and information, you're, you, there's boundaries. There's mm -hmm. an inside and an outside. Yeah. And oftentimes in all these discussions, I, always, it's a, I first look, okay, what's inside and what's outside? Where's the boundary? And if you listen to how the discussions go, you don't really sense, or they're using the words kind of amor amorphously, <laughs> not really defining where the boundary is. And so the, the language doesn't go anywhere. So, and the question is, if the entropy is inside and outside, then you really can't, what does it mean to say the entropy of the universe? Because the entropy, that quantity only means something when you're on the outside watching the system. Entropy is not necessarily a property of the system when you're on the inside looking at it. Oh, that's okay. It. So that that's a major... Yeah. Entropy is only observable from the outside. Yeah, we call it, you know, in the engineering, we have the black box view and the white box view. The external design specs, the external view, how the user interacts with the system. And then there's the inside, the white box view of, of the design, which is the circuits, the chips, the, how all the mechanics work on the inside. And we've Okay, let me two. just, let me just clarify this. So the black box view is the external view, is how the user interacts with the system. Mm -hmm. And the white box view is the internal view mm -hmm. the view from inside and and how does that relate the, the one the black box is how the user interacts with the system the white box is 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 what it looks like, how it interacts how it works inside but the boundary occurs and that isolates the inside from the outside the, talking about a system or an outside user interacting with this bounded thermodynamic system and you do so through things like pressure temperature entropy and so but you don't have to deal with the complexity of what's actually going on inside that's part of um, what qualifies this weak emergence it's that that transition that once we cross the boundary what's inside is no longer you don't have to worry about it it, it simplifies all of a sudden down to a handful of simple concepts like entropy. Entropy is just a measure of, of the energy that is unavailable to useful work for an outside person interacting with the system. Uh, you walk inside the system, you see uh, if it's gas, then you see molecules bouncing on each other. You could talk about states and, and stuff. And you can qualify, you can show theoretically starting from statistical mechanics, derive something that looks like entropy from the outside. And we've, then we've made the association that entropy is counting states. 
and yeah, sort of that's there are possible been, states, right? Yeah, well, you, they, they're equivalent in certain situations, but the danger is when you equate now, you see people talking about entropy as counting states. Mm -hmm. And that's not, you can't do that. And it gets you into trouble if you do that. Mm -hmm. So as just as, as a, a mental discipline as a physicist, I always try and make sure that when I'm talking about thermodynamics, I use entropy to talk about outside view. And if I'm inside, then I don't use words like entropy. I, I talk about what specifically happens at the micro level, and I don't let my discussion, my thoughts go outside of that. And well, I don't think that's so, common. So let's do a whole episode on entropy, energy, and information and how they intersect, because I've, I've had this conversation with a lot of different people on my channel. And mm -hmm. It, you can go a lot of ways with it, but it obviously I've gotten so many of these things conflated and confused because of all these conversations and because nobody really knows. And I'd love to talk to somebody who really knows. So let's do that. And then, and then just to tie things up here, I would like to relate to you that I was watching a video between Mary Cohen and Sibylla King. I don't know if you've ever seen any of their discussions. They're working. Sevilla King is working her way through Persig's. Um, Persig wrote Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, but he also- Oh, wrote, I love that book. He also wrote a book called Lila. And mm -hmm. she worked through Zen first, and now she's working through Lila. And Mary um, is more of a theologian. Sevilla has not tackled that in the past, but she had Mary come on and they were talking about they were having a discussion about Persig's work and his view of substance, which is very arcane. I don't want to get into all of that. Mm -hmm. But Sevilla talked about Persig's viewpoint on systems and how they are, how they have these layers. So there's the internal system, like of the computer, mm -hmm. the, the nuts and bolts of what makes it work, the circuitry and so forth. And then there is this, um, then there's the software layer. There's probably, an, there, there were four layers. So there's some other layer in between there. But the important thing is, if I'm writing a novel on my computer, I'm using an application, a software layer to type the novel in. Mm -hmm. But the novel, and the novel itself is on the computer. It's stored in the memory, right? But the novel is not tied to the computer. The novel could show up elsewhere. It, it could be printed off on paper. It could be distributed widely. It could be distributed digitally you know, to a lot of other people's computers. So the novel is not tied. But then there's a layer above that, and that's the layer of the one who thought of the novel, the idea of the novel, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's those two upper layers that we don't usually consider when we're considering this issue of physical systems, right? Because you talked about the black box view, that would be the, the software layer, and the white box view would be roughly the hardware layer, or did I overgeneralize? Hmm. I'm gonna have to think about that one for the next time. Okay. So if you could email that, that link, I'll, I'll watch it. Oh, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I'll, I'll, put in, I'll put it in the information. I'll put it in the description too. 
And mm -hmm. all you folks out there who are interested in this series, please click subscribe so that you'll get all of um, Glenn's insights on these things. It's going to be a very exciting series. Okay. This has been super stimulating. <laughs> all right. Thank you, Glenn. Okay. Well, you have a great thank day. you for, for having me here and, and talking me into actually doing this in the first place. Well, I'm really excited to explore your ideas. We're going to find that bootloader. <laughs> Well, that's, that's my quest. If I can't do it, then I prove myself wrong and I've done my scientific duty. Sounds okay. Good. Okay. Have a great day. All right. Take Bye -bye. care.